Please take your Bibles and turn to the very last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be reading uh, in just a moment the first 10 verses. Uh, this is probably uh, the most uh, debated passage in, in all of the book of Revelation. Um, all throughout church history, uh, the question has been asked, what is the meaning of the thousand years? One thing I would encourage you this morning is to keep your Bible handy because we're going we're gonna to turn to other passages of Scripture in order to help us understand what this passage is teaching. And so Revelation chapter 20, uh, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed." Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Several weeks ago when we were in chapter 12, I mentioned to you that the longest war in history was known as the Reconquista. The Reconquista was a war that took place on the Iberian Peninsula, and it lasted from 711 A.D. to 1492 A.D. It was a 781-year war. I also shared with you at that time that there is another war, It's actually lasted a whole lot longer. It's a war that started all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, and it's a war that continues on today. It's a war between God and Satan. It's a war between the, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. It's the war between the church and the world. It's a war that everyone in this room right now is engaged in. It's a room that, or it's a war that every one of your children and grandchildren are engaged in. And there are times when it appears that the church is not doing very well. There are times it appears that the, the church is going to go down to defeat. 
the enemy is just way too strong and way too powerful and way too influential. And we may have a tendency to get very discouraged in this war. The book of Revelation, though, tells us that that's not the case. The book of Revelation tells us that we have a great reason for hope. This book tells us that that we have, as Christians, uh, something to set our eyes upon and our hearts upon. And that's what we want to see in this passage this morning. Unfortunately, we, we sometimes get so wrapped up in trying to figure out the thousand years trying to figure out what is this thousand-year period that, that we miss sight of the main point of this passage. Christians get consumed with the question of, should I be premillennial, or should I be amillennial, or should I be postmillennial? And, and we really fail to see the, the wonderful truth that John is teaching us here. Now, now before we get into the passage, I'm just going to play all my cards for you right now. I am going to preach this passage from what we call an amillennial perspective. I think that the amillennial interpretation of this passage is the best. Now, there are wonderful and godly Christians who are premillennialists. And there are wonderful and godly Christians who are postmillennialists. But I think that the amillennial view makes the most sense of this passage especially also when compared with other scripture, which is what we're going to do this morning. And, and so again, I, I, what I want to do in this passage is, is not so much spend all of our time looking at all the different views. Uh, we could do that if this was maybe a, a, a small group Bible study or something like that, but, but that's not my purpose this morning. My purpose this morning is to help you to see why God has given us this passage and how this should be an encouragement to you as a Christian and, and how it should be an encouragement to our congregation as well. So there are three parts to this passage. All, all three are meant to encourage us. First of all, Satan is bound. Second, the saints are in heaven. And third, Satan is defeated. Satan is bound, the saints are in heaven, and Satan is defeated. John sees an angel coming down from heaven, and, and children, you may have heard this as I read it, this angel coming down from heaven is holding two things. He's holding a key to the bottomless pit, and he's holding a big chain. And, and this angel grabs the dragon, and, and he's, we're told here who the dragon is. He's Satan, he's the devil. And he binds him for 1,000 years. Now, our premillennial brothers and sisters take this literally. They, they believe that an angel will come with a literal chain and, and will literally bind Satan and throw him into a literal pit where he can't do anything while Jesus sets up a 1,000-year earthly reign here on this planet. Now, there's a number of issues with that interpretation. We're not going to, again, get into that. But you have to remember that throughout the book of Revelation, we've been seeing that Revelation is known as apocalyptic literature. And, and as apocalyptic literature, a lot of the, the, the symbols, a lot of the things in this book are not meant to be taken literally. They are meant to be taken symbolically. All throughout Revelation, we, we've seen how all of these many, many things are, are symbols, symbols that represent important truth. And, and so the question is, 
in light of this genre of literature, apocalyptic literature, what is this binding of Satan meant to represent? Is this a binding that will take place in the future when Jesus returns? Or is this a binding that has already taken place? Well, as I've been saying to you throughout Revelation, we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so we're going to turn to a number of passages that help us understand what this binding is. And so take your Bibles, if you would, and go to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, second book of the New Testament. And look at verse 27. Mark 3, verse 27. Jesus is speaking and he says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, who is this strong man? Well, Jesus tells us in the verse right before that, the strong man is Satan. Jesus says very simply that he came to bind Satan. Now, go one book to the right to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and take a look at verse 18. Luke 10, 18. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus talks there about the fall of Satan, that, that Satan's power in some sense has been broken. One more book to the right. Go to the Gospel of John, John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And take a look at verse 31. John 12, 31, Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus, notice, ties the casting of Satan or the, the casting out of Satan to the time when he is lifted up from the earth. And, and being lifted up from the earth is just another way of describing Jesus' death on the cross. And so here in John, Jesus ties the casting out of Satan to his work on the cross. The Apostle Paul says something very similar in the book of Colossians. And so go to Colossians chapter 2. Just one more passage. Colossians chapter 2. Verse 13, Colossians 2.13, Paul says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. See, Paul does the same thing here that Jesus does. Paul ties the defeat of Satan to the work of Christ on the cross. And so we can say that in his first coming, 
Children, when Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago, in his first coming, Jesus bound the strong man. Jesus disarmed Satan. And, and this thousand-year period here that's mentioned in Revelation 20 is, is not, I believe, a period to be taken literally. Like, like many numbers in the book of Revelation, it is symbolic. And, and here it's symbolic of the entire time from the, the first coming of Jesus until his second coming. Very simply, Satan was bound when Jesus came and died on the cross, and he continues to be bound today. Now, you might have an, an objection to that. You might say at this point, it doesn't seem like Satan is bound right now. That doesn't make any sense. Pastor, look, look at the world in which we live. Look at the culture in which we live. You, you mean to tell me that, that Satan is bound at this moment? And, and besides that, doesn't... Doesn't the Bible, doesn't, doesn't Peter tell us to, to pay attention because the, the devil is like a lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour? How can you say that, that Satan is bound at this moment? Well, one author says something I think that's very helpful. He, he uses the illustration of going to the zoo. Now, children, let's say that um, tomorrow your parents were going to take you to the Oakland Zoo. And you drive, you leave here, and you drive, I don't know, an hour away, and you go to the Oakland Zoo, and you show up at the Oakland Zoo, and, and there's, a, there's a big banner out front that says, today is a special day at the Oakland Zoo. All of the animals have been let out of their cages. Now, would you still want to go to the zoo? No, somebody just said No. The brilliant answer. All the lions, all the bears, all the wolves, all the snakes, all of them are just out in the open. And none of us, if we're in our right minds, are going to walk into that zoo. Going to the zoo with, with all of those dangerous animals is fine as long as they're in their cages, as long as they can't get to you. Now, that doesn't mean that that the animals aren't still dangerous. If, if you go to the zoo and try to climb into one of their cages or one of, one of their enclosures, you're going to be in big trouble. And, and this author says this is how we should picture the binding of Satan. He, he's still a, a very dangerous enemy, a very powerful enemy. But, but there's a sense in which his, his power has been greatly curtailed, greatly limited. And, and specifically, John tells us here in Revelation how his power is limited. If you look at verse 3, it says, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Because Satan is bound, John says, he can no longer deceive the nations. Now, what is that referring to? Well, well think back to the Old Testament. God's, God's kingdom, God's people, were, were made up primarily of people from one nation, Right? People from Israel. Now, yeah, there were, there were a few Gentile converts here and there, but, but for the most part, Gentiles were, were outside of God's kingdom. But, but did you know that the Old Testament foresaw a day when, when Gentiles would no longer be outside? 
When, when Gentiles would no longer be in the darkness, when Gentiles would be brought into God's kingdom. For example, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Foreseeing the time when, when the Gentiles will come into the kingdom. Psalm 87 also speaks of this day. Psalm 87 says, among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And so the Old Testament prophesies of a time when, when Gentiles will no longer be excluded. We're thankful for that because I'm assuming most of us, if not all of us here, are Gentiles. The Old Testament looked forward to that. And, and when Christ came, that, that wall that was dividing Jew and Gentile was torn down. Satan was bound Satan's power over the nations had been broken and he can no longer deceive the nations. Now again, this doesn't mean that Satan no longer has any power. This doesn't mean that Satan is not a formidable, dangerous, powerful foe. But it means he's been chained. His, his freedom, his influence, his power is limited. Now again, as I said at the beginning of the sermon, this, this is meant to encourage us. This is not meant to, to get you wrapped up in the riddle of trying to figure out the thousand years so much as it is designed to encourage you. We, we look at this world and, and we look at this culture and, and it, it looks like Satan is doing whatever he wants to do. It looks like he's having a field day. Things look bleak for the church and, and bleak for the cause of righteousness. But, but brothers and sisters, we have to believe what God says here. We have to take to heart what he says in his word. Satan is not free. Satan is, is chained up, and that means that he cannot stop the progress of the gospel. He cannot stop the advancement of God's kingdom. He cannot thwart God's purposes in this world. You, you can think, for example, of, of the missionaries whom we support. So there's, there's Fikrit Bocek serving in Turkey. Judah Toss in the Philippines. Bill Green in Costa Rica. Isaac Vargas in Nicaragua. And, and God has his servants, his missionaries, all throughout the globe, all throughout the world. And, and this passage is telling us, again, there's nothing the devil can do to stop that. There's nothing he can do to defeat the progress of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to believe that. We have to take God at his word. Too often, perhaps, we, we live in fear. We are defeatists. But that's not what this passage tells us. And, and Christian, think even of your own life. Yes, you, you are in a spiritual battle. And yes, the devil wants to devour you. But, but ultimately, there's nothing he can do to stop or hinder or destroy God's purpose in your life. Nothing he can do to do that. In, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says we are, 
We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, we don't often feel like conquerors, do we? But the Bible says that's who we are. And, and then Paul ends with those beautiful words. He says, I am, I'm convinced, I'm sure that, that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, neither things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything all else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now I don't know about you, but this is very encouraging. Satan is bound. Yes, Satan is a, a powerful foe, but he is bound. He cannot thwart God's purposes in this world. He cannot thwart God's purpose in your life. God's going to finish the work he started in you, Christian. And, and no one will stop that. So that's the first scene we see. It should be very encouraging to us. The second thing we see is also encouraging to us. The saints are in heaven. At this point, John, John looks and he sees thrones. And, and on these thrones are those who have the authority to judge. Now, our premillennial friends will say that these are thrones on earth. That this is the, the literal 1,000-year earthly reign of Jesus, and, and these people are sitting on these thrones on this planet. Well, one problem with that view is that every single time, every other single time, thrones are mentioned in the book of Revelation. They're always in heaven. Thrones are always in heaven. In, in other words, this is, this is not taking place here on this earth. This is the church triumphant. These are those who, who did not worship the beast, who did not live in rebellion against God. They placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They lived their lives for him, even if it meant their death. And now they are in the presence of God and they are reigning with Christ. Now when you look at verses um, five and six, you, you'll see you see mention of what's called the first resurrection and the second death. And, and this, is where, this is where this passage continues to be puzzling. What exactly is the first resurrection and what exactly is the second death? Well, the Bible tells us that there are two resurrections and that there are two deaths. Let me explain to you what they are. First resurrection is what occurs every time a Christian dies. Every time a believer leaves this life, his or her soul is, is taken immediately to heaven. There's no, there's no purgatory. There's no soul sleep. As Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's the first resurrection. The second resurrection is what will happen on the day when the Lord Jesus returns. On the day of his return, our bodies will be raised from the ground and reunited with our souls. Every time we confess the Apostles' Creed, we confess that we believe in the resurrection of the body. And, and, and you've heard me say to you before, we want to be careful that we don't say things without understanding what they mean. 
And so tonight, when we say we believe in the resurrection of the body, that the Heidelberg Catechism helpfully explains to us what we mean by that. It means this, not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, that, by the way, is the first resurrection, but also my very flesh, my skin and bones, raised by the power of Christ, will be reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. That's the second resurrection. That's what all of us as Christians look forward to. So there are two resurrections. The first one is our souls going to heaven when we die. The second one is our bodies being raised when Jesus returns. Now what about the two deaths? The first death refers to our our physical death here on this earth. There's not one of us here, unless you're living when Jesus returns, which may be, but there's not one of us here that will escape that. We're all one day going to die physically. The second death is, is the judgment that will take place when Christ returns. It's, it's the judgment that awaits all who do not bow the knee to Christ, all who do not embrace him as Lord and Savior, all who live their, their lives in rebellion against him until the very end. They will suffer God's eternal judgment. That is the second death. Now, if we are Christians, three of those four things will be true of us. First, short of the return of Jesus in our lifetimes, as I just said, we will all experience the first death. We will all die. And and I have to pause at this point and, and ask you the question, are you ready for that day? Are you ready for the day when you will be taken out of this life? Are you trusting Christ as your Savior? Have you embraced him for your salvation? Second of all, when, when we die, if we are believers in Jesus, we will experience the first resurrection. We, we will immediately go into the presence of our Savior. And you think about this, that that your believing loved ones are there right now. They've already experienced the first resurrection. And they are now reigning with Christ. After the sermon, we're going to sing the hymn, By the Sea of Crystal. And I think it's the, the second stanza that says, Out of tribulation, death, and Satan's hand, They have been translated at the Lord's command. In their hands they're holding palms of victory. Hark, the jubilant chorus shouts triumphantly. Third, as believers, we will also experience the second resurrection. That means, Christian, for you, that when Jesus returns, your your body, the bodies of all believers will be raised and reunited with our souls and we will live in those glorified bodies forever and ever. You will experience three of those four things. But Christian, here's the thing that that you need to remember that there's one of these four that you will never experience. One of these four will never touch you. By God's grace, you will never 
experience the second death. If you have your Bible open, look at verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. Isn't that wonderful? The second death, Christian, has no power over you. Now, why is that? Why why does God say to you, the the second death has no power over you? Is it because you're you're better, smarter, more worthy than those who who don't believe? No, not at all. It's, It's because Jesus Christ true man and true God. It's because Jesus experienced the second death in your place. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, took the judgment that you deserve. Now, if you're a Christian, you you know that what I'm about to say is, is very, very true. It's hard It's hard to describe how comforting that is. We've been seeing throughout the book of Revelation that judgment is coming upon this world. A terrifying judgment is coming upon all who do not believe in Christ. And, and, And unbelievers, the wicked, will not be annihilated as some teach. They, they will experience torment and judgment for all eternity. That's coming. And, and, and as Christians, to know that, that I will never face that. That Jesus took it for me. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. Jesus took that for me. It's, it's almost impossible to, to describe with words how wonderful it is to know that. I will never experience the lake of fire. I will never experience the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I will never experience the place where the The worm does not die and the fire is never quenched. I deserve it, but I will never experience it. And if you are in Christ, you will never experience that. And so not only do we we rejoice this morning that the devil has been chained The gospel continues to advance, but we also rejoice that when we die, we will be with our Savior, and and the judgment that is coming one day will not harm us. It will not fall upon us. One more thing, also encouraging, Satan is defeated. Verse 7 says that that one day Satan will be released from prison. Now now notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that one day Satan's going to break out of prison. It doesn't say that, that, that Satan is in his jail cell digging through the concrete one little piece at a time until he, he finally is able to tunnel out and escape. No, the devil is God's devil. And when God has decreed, Satan will be released for a little while. 
And what will he do? Verse 8 tells us he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. What is this talking about? Well, again, this is why Scripture has to interpret Scripture. If you have your Bible, go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians is this mysterious passage. It talks about the, the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. And if you look at 2 Thessalonians 2 and, and verse 3, Paul says, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, he says, Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, the return of Christ, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. So you take Second Thessalonians and you take Revelation 20 and you put them together. And the Bible seems to indicate that, that one day, one day there will be a final global rebellion against God and against the church. Here in Revelation 20, in, in verse 8, there's a reference to Gog and Magog. It comes from the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 38 and 39, and, and that's where Gog and Magog are referred to as God's enemies, to, to unbelieving nations who rise up against God and rise up against God's people. And again, I think here in Revelation 20, we are being given the indication that a worldwide apostasy is coming one day. A worldwide rising up against and persecution of God's people is coming. And on the surface, it doesn't look good. On the surface, it looks horrible. If you look at verse 8, it says that the number of those who oppose God and the church are like the sand of the sea. Children, have you ever gone to the beach before and spent your whole day counting the grains of sand? I hope not. It'd be kind of fruitless. There's a lot of grains of sand. The, the image here is that the numbers won't be on our side. That, that, that the, the prospects don't look good. That the world, the enemy, looks, looks too powerful. But don't forget, that's often been the case throughout redemptive history, hasn't it? Gideon and his 300 men Versus the Midianite army that, that is actually described in the book of Judges. The Midianite army is described as being as numerous as the sand on the seashore. 300 people versus a countless multitude. David versus Goliath. Israel versus 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. 120 believers in Jesus huddled up in Jerusalem just after the ascension. The numbers often don't look good for God's people. And that will certainly be the case at the end of time. But what will happen? Verse 9 tells us fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And at that point, 
The devil is thrown into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then that war that has gone on all the way since Genesis chapter 3 will be over. It'll be over. And so I I hope, brothers and sisters, that that you see this passage for the encouragement that it's meant to be, not for the, the riddle that so many try to make it. It's designed to be an encouragement to us. And it's designed to say to us this morning that perhaps the church of Jesus Christ needs to stop living in fear and in unbelief And instead, in faith, knowing that that this is where this world is headed, go out and bring the gospel, being reminded that God's purposes will never be thwarted. No one and nothing can stop the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And even when the numbers don't look good, and even when the enemy seems oh so powerful, we are reminded that that God is orchestrating all things to his appointed ends. And so let us be encouraged this morning. The devil's bound. The devil's bound. Yes, there will be a, a, a massive apostasy one day and we see a lot of it already. But, but God will in the end triumph. Jesus wins. Let's not forget that. And so let's carry on the work the Lord has given to us with, with joy, with encouragement, with faith, believing God's promise, trusting that, that he will do his work in this world. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the encouragement, knowing that not only is Satan a defeated foe, knowing also, Lord, that that nothing can stop your work in this world, and and knowing as well that by your grace and because of Jesus, the second death will never touch us. We thank you for that. Help us, Lord, to live by faith in your promises. Help us to be instruments of yours in this world, we pray in Jesus' name.